Hello, hello, and welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. As always, I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's special episode, I've got a real treat in store for you. It's not one guest, but five previous guests. Recently, I've been asked the same question. Who have been the most successful guests that we've had on the shows? which is the most downloaded episode and all that kind of good stuff. I'm not going to tell you all the specifics, but what I thought might be quite interesting as we approach 100 episodes of Molecule to Market and over 30,000 downloads, which is just pretty crazy. I reflected on some of the amazing guests that we've had and all the episodes and I uh, looked at the data. I thought I'm not going to pick my favorite as that's basically like picking which are my favorite kids, which I can do, but I choose not to. So we looked at the analytics and pulled out the top five downloaded episodes and thought we would give you a bit of an insight into some of those episodes and what we think made them special. So ready for this? Because you're going to have to note down each of the episodes so you can go back and have a listen. Today, we'll give you a bit of a clip of each one, but I suggest if you haven't heard these episodes before, go back and have a listen. And if you have heard them before, I suspect some of them are still worth a listen. In no analytical order, but more date and chronological order, I'm going to start with the first of the five episodes, which was actually episode one, believe it or not, which was leading a top tier CDMO with Joyal Silver, who at the time was the general manager at Pfizer Center One. Joyal brought such kind of energy and zest to the interview. I distinctly remember interviewing her and thinking, wow, if I can get guests like this, this is going to be a very successful project. And it turned out that that's exactly what happened. And what I loved about Joyal's podcast episode was she went into quite a lot of detail about her early career as a nursing assistant. And I think from memory, she worked in an end of life care unit as well. And that ultimately helped shape the direction of her career. And one thing that Joyelle talked about, which has been a real theme across all of the podcasts that we've interviewed and all the guests that we've had on is just this sense of the importance of curiosity. And that's how it's helped her in her career and also the teams that she has led. And it's you know very much worked well for her. Uh, I did check in with Joyelle recently and my understanding is she is the global COVID antiviral franchise lead at Pfizer. What an astonishing kind of career path that she has had. So listen back to Joyelle's episode, which was episode one. And here is a quick clip from that episode. You mentioned something there about kind of leadership. And I think one thing I've seen kind of working with you and seeing you kind of lead your team is kind of what a what a bold kind of leader you are. So um, and in, in a sense, I suspect you know, younger people starting their career, uh, in, particularly in the pharmaceutical sector, will look at your career trajectory and be incredibly impressed by how you've gone from, you know, those regional roles in Pfizer to a, a global role. And, you know, what, what piece of advice would you give to kind of other leaders in the sector or other kind of people developing a career in the, in the life science space? Yeah, uh, 
I think the one piece that everyone could probably relate to is when you, it's okay when you don't know something, use that as a, uh, as fuel for, use your curiosity as mm-hmm. fuel for learning about the things that you're interested in. And that, that I know that can seem maybe a bit superficial. So as an example, you know, um, I took a role once where I was an alliance manager for um, this big alliance that we did for an immuno-oncology asset. And I didn't know the first thing about commercial development or I knew there were phases of drug development, but I hadn't had that firsthand experience. What I did know was how to lead teams, how to get people to work together and how to move the needle from an operational perspective. But in those early days, if I had one thing that I would have done differently is that I wish I would have asked even more questions about the things that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time, I thought it might perhaps show my weakness. And in looking back, I learned some very valuable lessons on that, those couple of years of my life, which is embrace that uncertainty. Ask the questions that you think that other people may think that you should know. It's completely okay to do that. In doing that, you're going to find out, you're going to learn more, you're going to create a safe space for other people to also ask those questions, and you're going to gain credibility. Because um, it just, you know, I was working and, and I still find today in my current role, there are so many experts, scientific expertise, marketing expertise, manufacturing expertise, you know, the people that I have the privilege of working with on a daily basis completely outsmart me in pedigree and schooling <laughs> and a lot of things. That, that doesn't matter. It, what matters is that what we can create together is something way better than what we could have done alone. But the only way you're able to unlock that value is to be curious. So my advice yeah. is be curious. And when you ask those questions, you're also going to find out something other people have lots of ideas of, you know, what should you do when you grow up? What do you want to be? What industry should you, um, should you go into? What I would say is trust your gut for what you really like and be curious enough to do some exploration. And in that curiosity, you're going to find sometimes that things people tell you to do are really not things that you're very interested in. And if you're not interested, don't force it. Don't go there. It won't be something that you'll be ultimately happy with. Next up is episode 29, which is the CDMO Disruptor, which featured Tia Lyles-Williams, who is the CEO at Lucas Bio, 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 sorry. And Tia is the first African-American queer woman to own and lead a biopharma large-scale manufacturing company in the US. This was one of those explosive episodes that really helped put Molecule to market on the map. As soon as I completed the interview, I wanted to share it with the world because it was just absolutely packed, full of opinion and the types of things that people want to say in the industry, but no one ever does. And just just exactly what we needed at the time. Lots of discussion around diversity and equality and, you know, very, I suppose, honest views from Tia around how things are often you know, not better today than they were a couple of decades ago. She also talked in quite a lot of detail about the challenges of actually getting a new biotech CDMO off the ground, 
but you know had a great attitude in terms of kind of not asking for permission to lead and just kind of going for it so you know really genuinely brilliant guest she was uh, i've followed her career since and she has been featured by all kinds of amazing publications and media outlets and no surprise because she is such a fascinating and different character that we have in the pharma and biotech outsourcing space so i highly suggest you go back and listen to episode 29 featuring tia lyles williams and here is a short clip of that episode now if our listeners don't know much about that part of the world, particularly from a biotech perspective, could you give us a bit of context into what's happening wider in that that community and, and why why you're deciding to build your facility there? Gotcha. Well, Philadelphia is becoming known as the new Silicon Valley versus Silicon Valley because of uh, particularly Spark Therapeutics' ability to get the first, uh, I think it's gene vector, viral vector drug approved by FDA. Excuse me. So there are a number of gene and viral vector companies popping up in the Philadelphia area is becoming, from my perspective, the next Boston, Cambridge Square, where you have this community of life sciences all around. Um, And so the missing thing, uh, one thing that they're missing there is the manufacturing piece. So there are no CDMOs in in Pennsylvania. Lucas Pi Bio is and will be the only CDMO uh, currently in Pennsylvania. Uh, And so that's really hurting the city as far as bringing uh, or showing a making a huge difference economically to the area. Uh, to give you a comparison, uh, with Boston, Cambridge area, you got tons of startup life sciences, but you also have big pharma companies with their own manufacturing facilities, or you have some that are not too far down the road, such as uh, New Hampshire, right? And then maybe coming up to to Jersey with the other big pharma companies in Jersey um, and their manufacturing facilities. So Pennsylvania is, is in the right spot at the right at the right time and right. Uh, for this particular type of business. The other thing is, is that um, the city of Philadelphia is, beyond what you, majority African-American. Uh, and so they're the ones that's being left out of this new surge of, of uh, uh, economics in Philadelphia as far as acquiring more dollars for the city. Um, they're, not, they're not getting the opportunities. Um, even in owning small businesses, uh, they have been significantly left out and they were actually one of the city, cities highlighted as not being able to uh, receive any of the COVID-19 relief for their small business. So it's really hit the city of Philadelphia hard. And so this is the opportunity for me um, not only actively participate in the life science economy in Philadelphia, but also to give back for our social impact goals and giving um, people in Philadelphia opportunity to support themselves again and support themselves in a uh, more financially healthy way with that leg up. Uh, I think I said it earlier today that the average salary is 38K for a manufacturing operator in, in today's market. And it's been that way for a long time. When I started, I started at 40K and that was with a degree and some experience coming from uh, the research world. Uh, so with us, we're offering a minimum of 50K. Um, this gives them, again, a, a significant opportunity to really start to generate wealth. And just to be honest with you, be able to financially support themselves, even without the wealth piece. You can successfully financially support you and your family with a minimum of 50K plus benefits. Next up is episode 39, which was titled From Pfizer to CDMO Startup, featuring Jerry Cox, who is founder and chief operating officer at Valesco Pharma Services. Well, at least he was at the time. 
Soon after the interview took place, I think it was about four or five months, Jerry actually sold Valesco to Pace Analytics. A really, really successful exit for Jerry, who now works within that bigger organization. And what I think was really fascinating about this episode and why I think it's been so popular was Jerry's had spent a couple of decades working in a big pharma company and then he who he went on to start a CDMO which is not always the kind of trodden path for most people that get a CDMO off the ground but what I thought was really insightful from the interview with Jerry and something that I took away from that interview was he talked about just being really good at what they do and I remember writing a blog for for Forbes uh, last year and and said you know even as a marketing person, you can have the greatest marketing in the world, but if you're not very good at what you do, then it's not going to last very long. You know, and the greatest marketing trick, if you like, is just being really good at what you do. So whether it's a product or a service or consulting or whatever it is that you guys, your businesses that you operate in, just being excellent at your delivery is what's going to build your reputation, keep customers coming back and ultimately build value in your organization. And Jerry talked about just becoming known as the lab down the hall for many clients, almost like an extension to the team. The episode was also packed with kind of entrepreneurial lessons in terms of networking, talking people, and just not taking yourself too seriously. Again, themes that I've actually written about extensively in my book, Floundering Founder. There's an entire chapter dedicated to just getting over yourself, meeting people and and the value of connections and networking. So here's a clip from episode 39 with Jerry Cox. You mentioned, you know, you always fancied doing something yourself. Where did that entrepreneurial desire come from? Is that something from your parents? Was it just something that, you know, that you that grew as you as you got more into your career? I'm just I'm just interested because it's in my experience, it's quite unusual to see that from someone that's been in a, in a big pharma setting for, for two decades. So I'm just, yeah, yeah I'm really interested to, to hear where that came from. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's quite a dramatic shift. You know, I, I think that uh, if you can pull it off, it brings you to a tremendous place because you have all this deep experience of working in big pharma for many years. And, you know, myself on the business side, but certainly our, our scientific team, which is, I think our science is what differentiates Valesco Pharma. I would say for me, um, I, I really appreciated being around many smart people and I learned a great deal. But, you know, there was that sort of bureaucracy of being in a larger organization and um, not really able to make decisions quickly, um, not necessarily seeing the the results of your hard work because things are, you know, move along very slowly sometimes in drug development. So I think that desire of sort of getting out of that environment, getting a place where I could operate more independently and take those skills, be it leadership skills and just sort of my aptitude to get things done, that translated very well into a smaller company environment. I mean, the things that we had to tackle, you know, hiring people and finding facilities and obtaining equipment, obtaining financing, getting customers, there's an important one. I think we learned very early on that if you don't go out and find some business, then it's time for everyone to go home. You know, we really emphasize that up front. So I think those years of particularly me traveling around to different Pfizer sites and having large groups of people that I was responsible for really kind of set me up for success in, in all the different aspects of, of, of what you need to do to start a company. And I also really enjoy, um, you know, getting out and meeting people. And, and um, you know, I was, I was in Michigan at the time and I was traveling back to Boston, to the West Coast. And, and um you know, I think what I discovered is, you know, when you work when you work for a big company and you're, you know, you're working on a floor, even if you're part of a 
global organization. There's a certain group of people that you're working with on a regular basis, but there's a whole big world out there. There are so many people doing entrepreneurial things, and it, it just it just opened my eyes to um, you know. If anything, I wish I I'd done it ten years earlier. You know, because there's so many different directions you can take it. And um, I mean, we're there right now with our company. You know, I mean, we're very busy. Things are going well. There's, there's a great deal of investment into the industry right now. The, the number of opportunities are, are, are endless. If you could go back, you know, and speak to your the 25-year-old Jerry, so probably not too much older than, than your kids, what advice would you give him? Yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, look for those experiences that allow you to uh, you know, do, do what I've done over the last 13 years, maybe get there a little bit more quickly. I guess that's because I, so I, I, I'll talk to folks who are coming out into the, into the workplace now. And you know, these are the things that I tell them, the same things I would have told myself. I, I was almost 20 years working at Pfizer. I mean, if I could have done it in 10 and, and have done the, the, the Valesco Pharma work for 20 instead of you know, 13 or whatever it's been, I think that would have been a better balance for me. Because there's been, again, it's, it's been this period of time where you know, you learn a tremendous amount working for a large organization like Pfizer. I mean, you're surrounded by the best of the best. But, you know, kind of taking that and turning it into something that you've created yourself, there's a huge opportunity to do that. So I think maybe just trying to find a way to accelerate that process would, would be one thing. And, and I would say, um, and, I, and I learned this over the years, but um, so surround yourself with great people. Surround yourself with great people. You know, I think it's one thing that I've been successful at is, I may not always be the person who comes up with the best idea in the room, but I know the best idea when I hear it. And I think what I'm good at is taking that idea and, and implementing it and um, you know, making it come alive. To the extent that you can be around people who really know the field, who are creative thinkers, who aren't afraid of taking risks, you know, those are the people who are going to allow you to, to really you know, fully take advantage of your, of your skill set and your opportunity and, and the, the financial success that comes with that, etc. All right, on to number four, which is episode 53, the CDMO startup with a heck of a track record. Episode 53 featured the sensational Corey Lewis, who is CEO and president and founder at Incog Biopharma Services. I think he was right up there with one of the most polished and articulate guests that we've ever had on the show. I'd met Corey briefly prior to this interview, but was absolutely astounded by just how superb a guest he, he, he was. You know, some guests come on and, and you can sense the nerves. And even beforehand, when I chat to some of the guests to try and kind of calm them down, he was just an absolute pro. And the lessons that he provided were truly brilliant. And, you know, the one thing I took away from Corey's episode was just the lessons that he learned from different industries, uh, specifically the franchise business model that he's adopted in his CDMO startup business, which, again, I think there's a real lesson in here, which is just looking beyond our specific industry and looking what companies uh, are doing elsewhere and trying to bring some of those into you know, into your organizations. And a lot of what Corey talked about was just amazing customer experience, which I genuinely believe is going to be a, a real differentiator for vendors in particular in the future. The other thing from Corey, which I got was uh, an insight into Chick-fil-A, which is a franchise uh, sandwich shop that I'd never come across before. 
And I remember a couple of months later driving with my family down to New York from Boston and I sent him a picture with me in a, with my kids in burgers in our mouth. And that was a very special day for us as a family as we enjoyed those delicious burgers. Didn't turn out particularly well because I ended up getting COVID that day. Nevertheless, I am very grateful to Corey and... That was episode 53, if you want to go back and have a listen. And for now, here is a quick clip from that episode. But when I started this journey of not knowing exactly what I wanted to do next, I literally gave myself three swim lanes. One swim lane was go buy an existing company, not even in the pharma space. I thought, let's try something different. Um, swim lane two was go hook up with a private equity group and you know grow a business, do a turnaround, expand it, exit. You know, ultimately, number three, where we landed was, you know, could we go create, you know, could, hey, could we go raise the capital to create another best in class CDMO in the space? Um, but I gave myself two months and had probably close to 50 different discussions on that swim lane one. It was looking at everything from uh, a tool and die company, landscaping company. I looked at franchises and it was, it was kind of a, a bizarre experience, but I did a lot of research. And one that I, I just find so interesting is I was looking at franchises in the fast food space. And my numbers are maybe a little dated here, but just to give you three parallels, Taco Bell, McDonald's, and Chick-fil-A. Uh, I assume you've eaten at all three of those and you've got your perspective of, of those. But All three. Yeah. So, I mean, all three of them bring a different level of quality. They bring a different menu type. You know, they bring the opportunity for re repeat customers. And candidly, I still, uh, while health and wellness is important for me, I still cheat and, and go to all three of those fast food places. <laughs> but when you think of it from a business perspective, and this was the, the interesting thing is, you know, a, a Taco Bell on average has about 1.5 million of, you know, uh, sales per store. A McDonald's, I think today is close to 2.6 million um, per store. And a Chick-fil-A is 4.6 million. Wow. At the end of the day, they're all fast food companies. At the end of the day, they, you know, tout quality at a different level. They, you know, tout repeatability between stores. But I ask myself, why is it that Chick-fil-A is able to do 4.6 million per store? And, and you start to dive into it. I mean, at the end of the day, McDonald's has a chicken sandwich and French fries. Chick-fil-A has a chicken sandwich and French fries. But for me, the reason I go back to Chick-fil-A is certainly the quality of the product is good. I think it's you know, on par, if not better than you know, some of the, the other chicken sandwiches that are out there on the marketplace. But what stands apart is the customer service that they offer, both in the days when we could go in the store. Um, you know, if you're sitting in their, uh, in their restaurant, the, the team was just very polite. They would oftentimes come pick your tray up before you could throw it away. They would ask you for a refill. They just had more people in their restaurant making sure that customer service was a, a positive experience and making sure that that touch point was good, right? When you go through the drive-through, um, my, my kids laugh uh, at this and they try it on all the time, but they clearly are trained that when you say thank you, their response is my pleasure. And if you say thank you a second time, it's my pleasure. And it almost goes back and forth until you finally drive away because you <laughs> can't outlast them. But the, it's a training element. They understand customer service. They've got a good product. And the thing that just baffles me, I told you the revenue numbers, 4.6 million per store versus a McDonald's at 2.5, 2.6. Chick-fil-A is only open six days a week. 16% less time being open, but they're 2x, you know, close to 2x more revenue working 16% less. And that I take that away from the standpoint, and you can analyze it however you want, but you know, work smarter, um, 
you know, it, does, it doesn't have to be about the amount of work, but how can you be more efficient with your work? How can you drive customer experience that once you get that customer, they come back and want to work with you a second time, a third time. They want to come, you know, purchase that sandwich. They want to tell their friends about it. I mean, right now I'm a, I guess I'm a marketer for Chick-fil-A because I tell people to go to Chick-fil-A. It's a great experience, great, <laughs> uh, great sandwich. And I candidly probably pay 20 or 30% more for the chicken sandwich as compared to some of the other, uh, you know, chicken sandwiches that are out there in the marketplace. And last, but certainly not least, is episode 86, Biotech Trends You Need to Know, which featured Alan Shaw, consulting CFO, special advisor, and board member of several biotech companies. I'm not a betting man, but given this was episode 86, and it's one of the most downloaded episodes already, I suspect Alan's episode has every chance of being our most successful episode ever. So it goes without saying that you should probably listen to it. Whether you're on the drug sponsor side, in a biotech, working for a big pharma, or like many of our listeners, work for a vendor in the CDMO, CRO, packaging, kind of pharma services space, you need to listen to this episode. Alan has a wealth of experience across you know different biopharma leadership roles that he has led. But I think why this episode was just so, so timely was Alan talking about the current situation in the capital markets that are really impacting biotechs and and where that has come from. And he talked about, you know, almost like a decade of partying and this now being the hangover for biotechs and actually what that is going to mean for the kind of supply chain ecosystem where many of us operate. Genuinely, I, you know, this is one of those episodes that I would not only listen to, but I would share with all of your teams internally. I did that. I think most of our teams in my organizations, remarkably candidate, have listened to this particular episode as well. Maybe why it's been so popular (laughs) as well. But nevertheless, it is one that I highly, highly recommend. And that is episode 86. You touched on something, which was my next question, which is obviously the capital situation in the biotech market. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that in terms of what you are seeing in terms of a bit of a slowdown amongst you know, particularly public biotech in what obviously a lot of our listeners work in the the outsourcing space so you know CROs CDMOs kind of vendors who are reliant on the success of those types of companies actually not necessarily even the success of those companies the development pipeline of those types of companies so i'd love your i suppose helicopter view of what's going on and what's causing some of that kind of angst that you you mentioned previously, but also how you envisage that will impact the kind of supply chain and the ecosystem that many of our listeners actually operate within. No, you know, there's, there's a domino effect, right? Uh, There's, there's no getting around it, you know, and it's funny, you know, history has a way of repeating itself. You know, when I was in telecom land, uh, you know, when when the service providers were being voted off the island, kind of the way companies are getting voted off the island right now, it's almost like a reality show in the capital markets. Um, I, 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 I looked at the valuations of a lot of the manufacturing suppliers and noticed that they were retaining their value. And I, and I thought to myself, well, if we 
are being an, uh, an endangered species, that should have a collateral impact. And interestingly, it did. <laughs> uh, it took, there was some latency before people found that out. Uh, but it did, it did have consequences. So, you know, for those people who, who work with companies like this, you know, I, I would point out the fact that, you know, there, it's basically these guys had, uh, you know, their, their cash card, uh, and they were able to go to the banks whenever they were able to. And now they're, you know, they've basically been told that they're, they, they don't have an ATM card anymore and they have to live with whatever's in their wallets. And, and so, People are probably in different parts of, of, of realization as far as that's concerned. I think the mantra has really been for people to really hunker down, to reprioritize uh, their resources and, and not necessarily do as much as they, they were doing. I think probably companies had their eyes were a little bit bigger than their uh, bellies. And right now with cash being Arguably, the number one metric that that the Wall Street is looking uh, on public companies is how much how much cash runway do you have? You know, and, and most people are looking for companies that are, are being viewed as more viable is companies with you know eighteen months of cash or more, and uh, and and the, and, the, and I think the real eye opener is there's a, over two hundred companies right now that are trading at negative enterprise value. That means that they're trading less than their cash balance. So that that's telling people that, uh, or companies that investors think that they shouldn't be spending their money on their development. So, you know, so there's a lot of pressure. I mean, I've, I'm even seeing situations where there's companies with cash, where in the past, they may have merged with another company to do development, who are now deciding just to liquidate and distribute the cash to investors. Uh, so that, that's the kind of the market dynamic. So I think you need to be sensitive uh, of your customer's uh, financial position in terms of cash. I think those who are, who are sensitive to folks who have cash sensitivities and think about uh, risk sharing with them in order to help them perhaps do things that they might not otherwise be able to do. Um because I, I think the mantra for a lot of these and what I'm telling these companies is you got to learn to do more with less. Uh, and and you and just because you could before doesn't mean that you should be doing it today. So I think collaborations are going to be an area that people are focusing on more. And again, I think a lot of the service providers out there, you know, you guys are out there all the time, you know, being able to connect people, you know, working as a connector and providing value and relationships and support will go a long way in terms of really endearing yourselves and, and, and providing real additional value that, that I think, uh, speaks to it because I think a lot of these things are relationship businesses. And I think having empathy for the shoes that these folks stand in, uh, it can be very helpful. So there you have it. There are our top five most listened to molecule to market podcast episodes. And just a reminder, that was not in order of downloads. That was just the top five of all time. So please go back and listen to Joel Silver in episode one. Tia Lyles Williams in episode 29, Jerry Cox in episode 39, Corey Lewis in episode 53, and Alan Shaw in episode 86. Beyond that, 
Just wanted to give you a big fat thank you for listening to our podcast. We are seeing it just continue to grow and increase in popularity. And it's just been a, a phenomenal kind of success. And, uh, you know, it's something that we do as a team alongside, uh, you know, not just me, but, you know, Gemma, Roxana and Tony at our end who pull all this together on your behalf and uh, without any huge funding or anything like that. This, the, the podcast is funded and sponsored by Remarketing, which is one of the organizations that I founded. If you're out and about in the next couple of months at AAPS or CPHI, I will be on the ground. So if you want to get in touch to meet and maybe do a little mini interview within your organization, please reach out on our website and let our production team know. Again, just wanted to say thanks for listening. Please give us a, a kind rating. As I mentioned before, go back and listen to the podcast that I've mentioned and any of the other episodes. These are kind of what we call evergreen content, you know, stuff that will last hopefully forever and continue to give value to people for many years to come. And if you can share the podcast with some colleagues, that would also be wonderful. Beyond that, thank you as always for listening and have a great day. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.